Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Oh, tightrope. We love tightrope. All right, so uh, here we go. It's the scramble. We've got a great scramble for you today. And I, I, as I said before, I really can connect the second and third segments of today's show. Uh, we're going to be talking about peanuts, the peculiar domination of pe- peanuts, the way peanuts, I'm talking about the comic strip, the, the franchise, uh, is having a moment right now. They have a movie out in the theaters. And, of course, Thanksgiving weekend, well, they've got the holiday special. They've got balloons uh, in the Macy's Day Parade. And then we'll uh, conclude the show today with a conversation about Adele, uh, who, of course, has us all in awe of her ability to break sales records at a time when nobody actually spies music anymore, and also to kind of unite um, a demographically disparate musical audience. Uh, there's very few, there's very little music that everybody listens to these days, but she might come close. Um, but they're Charlie Brown and Adele, they really are kind of the same person, round-faced, downcast, put upon, suffused with an aching sense of what was not, and disappointed by what is. Now, whether that applies to Lawrence Lessig or not remains to be seen. He's our first guest today. He, of course, has been running for president. Uh, he's the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School, uh, and he is a leading voice in the quest for election reform in the United States. Uh, He joins us now. Hi. Hi. Great to be here, Colin. Well, great to have you. Um, You were running for president uh, in uh, earlier this month, I think. You you either suspended or ended your campaign. Um, First of all, tell us, first of all, why you ended the campaign, and then we'll get back to why you were doing it in the first place. Well, it's hard to see the reason for the ending without seeing the reason for the beginning. You know, so I launched this campaign because... I thought there was a central message, the central part of the story of what we should be talking about in this election cycle that was not going to be in the debates and not going to be at the center of what the Democratic Party at least was talking about. And when we launched, we said, you know, it was a pretty improbable run, but we thought there was a chance to get to a level to be able to be in the debates. And if in the debates, then there was a real opportunity to make um, the focus of the Democratic uh, primary on the central issue. Um, But then, even though we qualified according to the rules the Democratic Party had set out originally, at the very last moment, the rules evolved, we could say. Um, So (laughs) as they evolved, it became clear that um, I was not going to be able to get into the debates, which made it no longer sensible to continue the campaign. Um, do Do you think those rules evolved because of or partly because of you? I... You know, I don't know. Um, I guess if I were the Democratic Party, I would be eager not to have me on stage either. So um, it wouldn't be surprising if that's what happened. Um, But, uh, you know, I think the frustrating part, uh, the important part isn't whether I'm on the stage or not. The important part is um, we still don't have an election where people are even talking about what I think is the core problem that we as a nation have got to solve. Um, And 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 there was a chance uh, that could have been the focus if, in fact, there had been a chance to be on the debate. Well, explain that core problem. Well, you know, um, all of us have this sense that there's something wrong with our government. It's not working, deep frustration. Um, But what we don't have is leaders willing to call it for what it is, and and that is that 
we have this institution at the heart of our democracy, Congress, which is a completely failed institution, crippled and corrupted uh, institution. Uh, and that's a problem because, you know, none of the things that presidential candidates are talking about that they want to do, none of the things that matter, whether it's raising the minimum wage or dealing with Social Security or getting us climate change legislation finally or getting us health care that Americans can afford or dealing with immigration, none of these issues can be addressed without Congress. But Congress is so crippled, so corrupted by the way money influences the system, by the way they politically gerrymander their districts, that it just can't give us in the political process what we need. And so what we have to do is to talk about how we're going to take on and fix that, that deeply corrupted institutions so that we can actually get a representative democracy back. Um, I wonder if those two things that you just mentioned are the same things, though. Uh, so one might argue that a gerrymandered seat is therefore a safe seat or a nearly safe seat or a probably safe seat, and that a safe seat sets you free to vote your conscience, that you're, you, you're not as beholden. You shouldn't anyway be as beholden. I mean, obviously, that seat is incredibly less competitive. Uh, the person who wants to take you out of your seat and, and replace you with new ideas is going to have a hard time, whether it's a primary or especially if it's a general election. But if you have a gerrymandered and safe seat, why aren't you in a supreme position to vote your conscience? Well, because what the safe seats have done, you know, out of 435 seats in Congress, maybe 90 are competitive seats. So that means 345 seats are safe seats. Um, but what it means to be a safe seat is that you are constantly obsessed, not with what you know the minority party cares about, but what the minority far right or far left of your own party cares about. The only people who can challenge you in a safe seat are either, if you're a Republican, more right-wing Republicans, or if you're a Democrat, more left-wing Democrats. So your whole focus is on the extremes, which leads this Congress to be a much more polarized, extreme, brittle, crippled institution um, than it would be if it were actually reflective of the views of the American people. And this is the core point. We don't have a representative democracy anymore. We don't have a Congress that's representative of the views of America. Um, and we don't have um, either a House of Representatives or the Senate that can actually focus on what the people care about because they are so overwhelmingly obsessed with what the funders of their campaigns care about, because this is where they spend most of their time now, obsessively trying to raise money to fund their campaigns. So that brings us to the idea of how to fund campaigns, particularly how to fund campaigns in a post-Citizens United world. And at that point, if you're a reformer, your eyes t turn t towards one of several places, one of them being the place I'm sitting right now, Connecticut, uh, where we do have a citizens election uh, program passed uh, after the turpitudes uh, of former Governor John Rowland. Um, it, it was put on the table as a budget item this year, uh, almost fell to the axe, didn't fall to the axe. I know you were concerned about that. What, what do you see as the virtue of the citizen election program? Well, we have three states in the United States right now, Connecticut, Maine, and Arizona, which have, which have robust um, um, uh, public funding systems for state legislature, le legislative offices. Um, and, and, and these three states, the very different states, um, provide a real model for what we need to be doing at the federal level as well. Not precisely the same um, s schemes. Um, I, I don't think they automatically translate to the federal level. But at least to give people a picture of what 
a different way of running a government could look like. Um, because, you know, most people in Washington, most people thinking about Congress have no idea that you could actually change the way campaigns are funded and thereby change the life of representatives. You know, when I'm in Connecticut and I talk to representatives, Republicans and Democrats alike, they talk about the incredible liberation, the freedom of not having to spend all of their time raising money. I mean, they raised money uh, during the period of time necessary to qualify. Once they've qualified, that's it. They go back to their job of being legislators. But in Washington, um, from the time they're elected until the next election, they spend their time, 30 to 70 percent of their time, bending over backwards to raise money um, from the people who are funding their campaigns. And, and that difference is a difference which we've got to show America that, uh, you know, is actually possible even with Citizens United. Now, of course, Citizens United has undermined the effectiveness of the Connecticut, uh, Arizona, and Maine systems. Maine just had a um, referendum on the ballot, which um, the voters overwhelmingly supported uh, uh, increasing the Maine program so that it's more independent, more robust against the problems created by super PACs. Um, so there's no doubt that they've been weakened by the, uh, by the development of super PACs. Um, but that's no excuse to go back on this real opportunity for a solution to this problem. And, and I think that, um, you know, the, the leadership of Connecticut and Maine and Arizona is critically important to giving America a sense of what we could do at the federal level as well. And we, we should say Citizens United has weakened uh, the Connecticut program, and we can come back to that in just a second. But they're not alone in either weakening or trying to weaken the uh, program. I mean, once uh, Governor Malloy became governor, he his administration and Democrats uh, in the legislature, rewrote some of the campaign finance laws so that uh, donors could give more generously to state parties and so that state parties could then more generously fund state races. Um, this was, uh, once again, again a way of uh, having people participate in the Citizens' Election Program but be eligible for other kinds of money, not just the kind of independent expenditures that we talk about with uh, with post-Citizens United stuff, but grants from the state party. We've even had the Democratic Governors Association sue our government for the for an, inj- for an injunctive relief so that at no point could Governor Malloy's uh, activities as a fundraiser, raising millions of dollars for the Democratic Governors Association, be interpreted as coordination with his campaign. Uh, They lost that one. And then lastly, we've got, once again, the state Democratic Party. And I'm a registered Democrat. I just want to say that. But the state Democratic Party most recently trying to inject funds from their federal account into the state campaign. They're in court right now arguing that um, discovery of what they did, discovery of their funding operations and how they solicited that that federal account money and got it into the state campaign, uh, that a subpoena would have a chilling effect on their operations, to which I reply, I want it to have a chilling effect. That's the point of the law is to have a chilling effect on what you're, you're doing when you're not doing the right thing. But it, so it's not really just Citizens United. People get in power and they want more money and they'll get it anywhere they can find it. Yeah, that's right. And that's why we've got to develop outside of the government, outside of the insiders of politics, we've got to develop a very strong resistance to the notion that these people be able to depend on this private funding to fund their campaigns. Because if they do, if they develop and and build this uh, support greater, even greater, that's going to make them less responsive, less independent of that money and less responsive to people as as a representative democracy is supposed to be.
So back to the Citizens United stuff. And this is less germane to legislative races than it is to the gubernatorial race. But in our last gubernatorial race, each candidate, if you combine the primary grant with the general election grant, they get about $8 million. Each candidate benefited from $9 million or more in uh, outside expenditures. Um, so I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, we just wasted $8 million per candidate because we don't get candidates who are getting in office not owing anybody anything. They implicitly owe something to the organizations that and the donors to those organizations who spent $9 million on their behalf independently. What's your answer to that? Well, I do agree that the money that's spent independently is a corrupting influence inside of this process, at least as it's spent through these super PACs, which become these um, shadow coordinating entities, which candidates bend over backwards to keep happy. Um, But the response to that should be, let's fight the legal battles to get us to a place that we can undo the super PACs. People think that um, people confuse the Citizens United with super PACs, and those are two very different ideas. What Citizens United said was, you can spend unlimited amounts of money if you're a corporation, individual, or a union. Um, But a super PAC uh, is something different from that. A super PAC is an entity created by a lower court decision, not the Supreme Court, that said that if you can spend unlimited amounts of money, that means you should be allowed to give unlimited amounts of money to these political action committees, independent political action committees called super PACs. Mm. Um, And that decision is a decision that radically changed the dynamic of how campaigns would be affected by money. And that decision has never been reviewed by the Supreme Court. And there are a lot of people out there that are developing the litigation to challenge um, the um, ongoing status, constitutional status of super PACs. And my view is the Supreme Court's eventually going to clean that problem up. But the critical thing is during the interim period we're in right now, we can't back away from the kind of commitment that Connecticut made to clean elections just because we're so frustrated by the corrupting influence of this um, you know, terrible influence of uh, super PACs in the interim. Let's fix the super PAC problem and then you know, restore and extend the states and, and the, at the federal level who have, who have affirmed the importance of clean money inside of our political system. Although with a, you know, I mean, this wasn't done uh, done frivolously. I mean, what we do we do have is like a lot of states, we have budget problems that have budget problems that have budget problems, and so we really are talking about pretty profound cuts to the social uh, the social safety net, and you know, and that is held up against a system. For example, if you are a state senator uh, or a state senatorial candidate running unopposed in your district, you have no opponent. Um, your grant is $28,400. It's hard for me to say, wow, that guy needs $28,400 to run against nobody. Uh, it's considerably less than he would get if he had an opponent. I get that. Uh, and I have to tell some kid that the, you know, that the beach is closed or his health insurance is being cut or that some single mother you know, can't find childcare anymore, that these are profound needs as well. And I also do understand that a clean, Lesigian system would, would deliver those services better. Uh, but right now we have what we have, and it's really, it is hard to say to people, well, we're going to cut the social safety net, but this system will stay intact. Yeah, but, you know, there's a false uh, uh, conflict here, because, you know, if you went back, if Connecticut went back to the ways of New York or the ways of Illinois or the ways of our federal Congress, um, it's not like you're going to get a more responsive Connecticut legislature. 
that's going to be more protective of social safety net issues. What you're going to get is a Connecticut legislature more interested in answering the demands of the lobbyists who ultimately are the people who are going to be channeling the money which you increasingly depend on because you're privately funding elections. Right? The point is uh, the system of corruption that evolved uh, uh, has evolved at the federal level, which you know Connecticut was responding to when you uh, adopted this really incredibly important legislation um, last last century, um, um, is a corruption that makes government less responsive to ordinary people. And the fact that you might criticize on the margin the existing system that might have all sorts of mistakes built into it, I, you know, I'm sure it does. It's any system does. Um, it you know can't be offered as an argument for why removing it would make the government more responsive to the people. It's exactly the opposite. It would make it less responsive. Um, so yes, Connecticut, like every state, is facing terrible difficulties because of budget constraints, um, partly because we've built into our uh, mentality, you know, a very skewed conception of how we should be raising money to support government. But, you know, put that aside. This is a real problem across the country. But we can't compromise on a principle of representative democracy in order to solve that problem. Because if we do, we will not have solved the problem. We have just made the problem worse by reinforcing the power um, to skew government towards the benefit of those who fund elections. Great point. Well argued, Lawrence Lessig, uh, Roy L. Furman, professor of law and leadership at Harvard Law School, former candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. Thank you so much for it. I mean, I think this topic is of paramount importance. Thank you so much for introducing it to people and reminding us of it. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with uh, Sarah Boxer, who's written about as smart a piece about peanuts and Charlie Brown as you could ask for. All right. Well, Charlie Brown, by my reckoning, turned 65 this year, so he's reached the point where happiness is a colonoscopy that doesn't find any polyps. Um, he's, uh, of course, uh, he and the Peanuts gang are featured uh, tomorrow night in a Thanksgiving special on ABC. Of course, they own these winter holidays on Thanksgiving morning. Snoopy and Woodstock will return to the skies uh, of New York City in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, longest-running balloon in the parade. I'm told this is their 38th appearance. Uh, and then, of course, there is, in fact, a Peanuts feature film. So joining us is Sarah Boxer, who wrote uh, The Exemplary Narcissism of Snoopy in the Atlantic. Uh, I'm a longtime fan of Peanuts, going back to my childhood, my far-distant childhood. Uh, this was just a, such a great roundup of all the thinking that people have done, profound thinking that people have done over the years uh, about Peanuts, coupled with uh, Sarah's own profound thinking about Snoopy himself. So, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, let's uh, begin with, uh, I, I want to get to Snoopy uh, in the time that we have, because you have important things to say about Snoopy, and perhaps I do too, but um, we should begin, as you do, with the fact that, really, Charles Schultz had two incredible creative epiphanies. One of them was Snoopy, who became a character almost like no other character that you can think of. Something, uh, a bit of Pan and a bit of Puck and uh, a bit of Walter Mitty, a whole bunch of things spun together. But his first one had to do with um, this kind of counter-narrative about post-World War II childhood in America, which was supposed to be really the best of times, the rosiest of times, the happiest of times. There was plenty. There was optimism. Uh, children were happy. There were lots of television sitcoms in which children were shown as happy uh, in, in intact, reasonable family situ situations. And along comes this strip, which, Sarah Boxer, was very, very dark about childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's 
That's right. In fact, the very first strip um, has Charlie Brown walking by two kids, and one of them says, good old Charlie Brown. And then after he's out of, out of earshot, they say, good old Charlie Brown, how I hate him. And um, that, was, that was kind of the feeling. And, um, you know, Charlie Brown was not, at, at that point, even above a little uh, meanness of his own. Um, um, and uh, I think this was a great um, counterbalance to the sort of 50s, you know, suburbia is the greatest and, all, you know, all your problems go away. And um, and 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 the, the more and more, it was Charlie Brown that came to embody that that um, sort of dysto- dystopic or dis- <laughs> yeah, just sort of out of step with things um, as they should be. Um, and uh, um, and he came, yeah. So he more and more just alone came to embody that feeling about society and not things not being quite right. Right, and if you think about it, sort of the initial audience for this strip obviously was not children. No child would resonate very well with the strip that you just described and the other strips that came along, which were similar, similarly dark and, and, you know, was kind of there was a wickedness uh, to the whole narrative. But, in fact, the people who were probably reading it were about 35 years old or so or 30 years old. They were probably parents uh, in, you know, in the post-war era. Those people would have been through the Depression and World War II. So they're no, they, to them, the notion that childhood was this roseate Sunnybrook farm would have been a mockery of their own experiences. They had very, very difficult experiences, and Schultz probably came closer to telling the truth uh, than than most of the pop culture they saw around them. But the next wave, I think, was were real children. I can tell you that in the early 1960s, uh, I was maybe a fourth or fifth grader, and I started reading the strips and getting them in book form, and I thought, this is so much closer to my life, (laughs) in which childhood is fraught with anxiety and depression and lying awake at night, and nobody ever talks about that. Right. I think one of one of the great things, and I think actually children were reading it all all along, um, not not just in the '60s, but I think in the '50s too. But uh, Schultz himself did not want to be taken as a sort of children's, you know, children's author <laughs> or writing the strip for you know um, for kids. Uh, in fact, he was he was. Um, kind of peeved about the choice of the the name peanuts because he thought it was sort of demeaning and he thought that it you know indicated something that doesn't really matter um and that's kid-like um and um he did not like that but i think kids were reading it all along and i think um like you said um that a lot of kids found themselves in the different characters and um i think also because there were so many rich characters, it wasn't just Charlie Brown. It was it was Linus and Lucy and Peppermint Patty uh, as time went on, and Snoopy. Um, and you could kind of find yourself if you couldn't find yourself in Charlie Brown, you could probably find yourself in 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 one of those as a kid or as an adult. Um, and um, and so. 
Well, yeah. and so, and as you limb, I think, very successfully, I mean, it really became an ensemble comedy that was almost a template for future ensemble comedies. Pick your favorite TV sitcom, pre-Simpsons, in which everything changed. Simpsons and Arrested Development and Seinfeld kind of changed the nature of ensemble comedy. But prior to that, pick an ensemble uh, comedy, and you can locate the, the, the Peanutsian archetypes in, in, in all the characters there. They're just so beautifully sketched there. But uh, just so we don't run out of time, so... Then came the second pivot, the second time that Schultz kind of saw through this creative wormhole to another dimension. And that was right. the decision that he made to take this dog who was functioning pretty much like a dog, a dog with some emotions, a dog who was capable of having his feelings hurt, a dog, but to take him and turn him into this pan-like, puck-like figure, this, this spinner of incredible uh, fantasies. Th- this guy, this cre- creature who was living a life which he could pretty easily live without any of the people around. He didn't even know his owner's name. He called him that round-headed kid. He was dependent on one thing, which was the arrival of the suppertime bull. But other than that, he was... Well, you take it from there, Sarah. Well, yeah, I think um, he... um, uh, Snoopy was, uh, Schultz said, his best invention. Putting him on two legs and giving him thoughts was his best thought. And I think he thought it was was greater even than, than Charlie Brown. Uh, but a lot of people thought that once Snoopy started having thoughts and started standing up and started stealing the show, and, you know, he was the one that went to the moon, and he was the one that fought the Red Baron, and, you know, he was Joe Cool, that this just totally ruined the ensemble nature and, and the Charlie Brown-centered um, strip. Um, but he was kind of like, you know, he just, he just stole the show. And, I, and um, I, sort and of took I, the took the uh, richness in some way out of the out of the strip. See, I, I'm with you on this. I dispute that idea. I think there is something that ruined the strip, but I'll come to that in a second. But it seems to me that one of the things that Snoopy does is create a character who's in touch with an alternate version of reality. And you kind of once again go to your favorite sitcom. Mine happens to be Taxi. So suddenly you <laughs> had you had Jim. I mean, obviously Louis De Palma, the Danny DeVito character. He's Lucy, but right. you you have Latka Gravis, Andy Kaufman, and you have Jim Ignat- Ignatowski, the Christopher Lloyd character. These are they're sort of Snoopy-like in the sense that, yeah, they're standing there in front of you, but they, they're in fact participating in this alternative, highly lyrical reality. And uh-huh. to me, that's an incredible selling point, not something that detracts at all from the value. And I guess you feel that way, too. Yeah, I, I definitely do. And I think as, as time went on, Schultz really uh, poured more and more of himself as a kind of an author, um, into Snoopy. I think at the beginning people often confused Schultz and Charles Schultz and Charlie Brown and said, oh, it's got to be you. It's the same name. And, um, you know, aren't you sort of, but as he got more and more successful, people were saying, well, you know, um, you know, how does this fit? You know, you're not really Charlie Brown. And I think Schultz started to put his existential um, thoughts and um, his thoughts about creativity, I mean, he turns Snoopy into a novelist who doesn't do that well as a novelist, and, um, but, um, but he is the writer. Um, and um, I think more and more um, he does pour himself, and there's a pathos that wasn't there at the very beginning of, of Snoopydom. Um, that is is very very rich, um, I think. Um, but he does he does steal the show, and the ensemble nature 
changes somewhat. In fact, you know, Schultz tried to give Snoopy a family, which I think is one of the weakest points um, in in the strip, um, and really detracts from both Snoopy and the rest of the cast. But he he himself realized that that was that was a mistake. It was like. He, I think he once put it that it was like making Superman fly. That the essence of Superman is to jump, not to fly. <laughs> and he he um, did think that that he might have made a mistake and put too many family members um, out there for Snoopy. Um, but I think he ne- he never regretted it because it was more and more who he was. It was where he could have these flights of fancy and. Um, you know, I think it w- in the in the end it was him more and more. It would it would be indefensible if it weren't true. But it really the the truth is if you walk through. I mean, my father used to work at a real estate agent agency where nobody was really a real estate agent. Absolutely, everybody <laughs> there was doing something else. You know, <laughs> my father happened to be writing plays, but everybody was doing something else. And that's so much the way life is constructed that really a lot of people are Snoopy in the sense that they can be master of a certain domain. It's just uh-huh. not the one that they're sitting in right now, and so. That gives them an incredible amount of freedom. Now, I would say, I would argue, Sarah, that what did hurt the strip a lot was the arrival of the birds, specifically Woodstock, because they began to interfere with Snoopy's supremacy. It would be as if in Star Wars suddenly there was like this other small, fluttering, Tinkerbell-like presence (laughs) that was capable of distracting Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, and and buffaloing him. Suddenly, Snoopy was often the butt of... Not the butt of the birds' jokes, but he was flummoxed by them. He was flummoxed right. by them in a way that we don't want to see Snoopy flummoxed. Respond to that. That's 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 a very interesting point. I mean, um, I think one way to look at the birds is that it is another step into um, sort of non the nonverbal world. I mean, Snoopy couldn't talk, but he could think, and he thought in English sentences. Um, Woodstock and his friends. As time wore on, he got a family, or at least friends, um, of the same species, um, uh, who spoke in tick marks. And, um, you know, so you have no idea what they're saying. Um, and it is, it is, it sort of depletes, it just sort of takes the air out of, out of this rich world. If the birds had been aerial to Snoopy's Prospero, then Uh it would have made sense, right? If they were emissaries that he could send out to do his bidding. Yeah, that would be interesting. Uh There would have been some intellectual consistency, Uh, but uh, as things stand, not. Well, it's all something we say goodbye to, but Sarah, we we only have about 30 seconds left. There is an irony in the sense that, you know, they now drench, they suffuse all of our holiday celebrations, you know, and it's still a slightly downtrodden, despondent, Eeyore-ish take. You know, it's kind of, he did succeed in injecting a little bit of melancholy into everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I think people don't associate uh, Peanuts at all. And I think the Peanuts movie is, you know, a sign, sign of that, 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 you know, uh, Charlie Brown has become not this sort of dystopic figure, but somebody who will try, regardless of of, of what happens to him, you know, that he's persistent, um, which he was. But um, I think um, that um, I, I just hope that people go back and read 
the strips because they they do have a very different feel. Right. Then the, the new Charlie Brown is sort of a perky, upbeat version of Sisyphus, and that can yeah. never ever <laughs> be right. Thanks so <laughs> much, Sarah Boxer. Oh, sorry, I'm, I don't mean to cut you off, but we are flat out of time. It is a great article in the Atlantic. Absolutely, track this down. It's the smartest thing I've ever read about peanuts. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Zachary LaSala. Katie Talarski is back in the saddle as senior producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Peppermint Patty. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff with their security blankets, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, our salute to dioramas. And now, back to Colin. So sometimes when we do these segments about popular current music, uh, I feel the necessity of explaining a little bit who it is we're talking about because, you know, the NPR audience maybe skews a little bit old. Everybody doesn't know who everybody is. In this one rare occasion, possibly unique occasion, I, don't, I think I don't have to do that. Uh, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch, uh, sketch this weekend in which uh, a bickering family, a multi-generational bickering family with the typical tendencies to argue over Thanksgiving dinner uh, could be pulled out of that instantly if somebody pressed a boombox button and uh, Adele's new song Hello played. And all the members of the family would then begin lip-syncing it. Uh, now, compliance with Adele may, may not be that complete, but Adele is, I think, one of those so-called four-quadrant artists who appeals to just about everybody, young, old, male, female. There isn't a demographic that she can't touch. Joining us right now to talk about this uh, new release is Laura Snapes, contributing editor for Pitchfork. So, Laura Snapes, first of all, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having me. And uh, there's several several different things we have to talk about. The artistry of this release itself and then uh, its commercial potential, which is being talked about uh, a lot. But maybe let's begin with the uh, the artistry of the release itself. Um, as somebody who writes about music, thinks about music, what do you see this artist doing with this release 25? After the incredibly popular, I think 31 million unit uh, 21, uh, is 25 different or is it more of what her fans want? I think it's more of what her fans want. If you look at the way that it's been marketed so far, it's in exactly the same very classy way as the previous records. It has the same titular convention. It was launched in a very, well, a, a pretty classy way with um, with a commercial on Saturday night or Sunday night TV in the UK. It's been very elegant and classical and she's done press in all the right places. You know, she's not having to do, if you look at other major pop star release campaigns, for example, when, I don't know, Taylor Swift uh, released 1989 and she had that, um, the, the big live stream thing that was kind of a, a slightly hysterical mess. There's something very kind of like simple and pared back about what Adele is doing. Um, in terms of the music itself, um, are, are there particular songs that strike you either as very uh, apt reinforcements of her brand or Adele exploring new musical terrain? Um, well, the lead single, um, Hello, I think um, is a really classy update of what she's been doing before. Um, if you look back to 21 and songs like Rolling in the Deep, there was definitely more of a, a soulful kind of deep south influence there. And I think she stripped that away a bit. I think she's she seems very conscious of not wanting to be associated with other kinds of music. And, you know, she she is a very monolithic kind of artist. 
But then if you look at songs like Send My Love to Your New Lover, the one that she made with Max Martin, that seems a little bit of an update. And maybe if you're being cynical about it, to come back to Taylor Swift, you could say it's a bit of a play for that kind of audience. Like, it's got a similar beat to something like uh, We're Never Ever Getting Back Together or I Knew You Were Trouble. Just Laura, just for the people who, who haven't heard it yet, let's hear a little bit of Send My Love. Put your hands So uh, talking to Laura Snapes, uh, contributing editor for Pitchfork. So one of the things that I, I think that you dealt with in one of your pieces about Adele was this um, the sense that she was, uh, that there was something called the new boring and that she was the queen of the new boring. That doesn't sound like a boring song there. Um, it, it sounds less like the, the wrenching piano ballad that, that the non-Adele fan would assume all of her music is. Yeah, very much so. And um, you can tell from the collaborators on this new album that she is trying to do something different. And, you know, she's in such a secure position musically, she could come back and she could she could make the same album over and over again. And I think the fact that she's gone to work with people like Ariel Rexhide and Tobias Gesso Jr. and Danger Mouse and Bruno Mars and do that tryout session with Damon Albarn, it seems like she wants to push herself for her own sake. It, she's only doing it to please herself because, you know, she could just keep doing the same thing over and over. I do think it's a, a shame that there's not, there doesn't seem to be more of her in the new record, that she's continually dipping back into this quite old news heartbreak now. You know, when you read press with her, she's so funny and self-assured and she seems to be in a really good place in her life. And it's it feels a bit sad that none of that's really coming through in the record. Right. So we know that she's, uh, if not married, uh, found a man with whom she... Uh, has had a child, um, that, that this kind of heartbroken person from the past uh, isn't who she is right now. But for I guess for people who haven't heard the song, Hello, which is about sort of that same person maybe but in a different place in life, we'll just hear a, a few bars of Hello. I've forgotten how it felt before the world fell at our feet. There's such a difference between us. Send a million miles Hello from the other side I must have called a thousand times To tell you I'm sorry For everything that I've done But when I call you Alright, well let's Let's build on that assumption that most people have probably heard that song. So, hello from the other side. Um, she's said, uh, Laura Snapes, that this is her from the other side, not that she's died or anything like that, but that she's you know reached adulthood. That's the other side. She's not in this transitional phase. The singer of this song is not in this transitional phase of, of, of faltering attempts at romance and broken hearts. Here she is talking back to this uh, lover from years ago. But... Uh, as you've suggested, it still sounds an awful lot like somebody's obsessing about a relationship that didn't work out. 
Yeah, and um, it would be sad to think that she... Well, because I know at one point she made songs where she was writing about how happy she was to have a young son and being in the relationship that she's in, and I believe when she took them to Rick Rubin, he, he listened to them and he said to her, I don't believe you. And so then she started tapping back into this like old, reliable reservoir and kind of coming out with these heartbroken songs again. But it's interesting the point that you make about um, it being... She's not in that transitional romantic stage anymore. If there's a really personal narrative that comes through this record, it feels to, it seems to be in the transitional part of ageing, of being a 25-year-old and being aware that her more youthful, less responsible years are behind her and that she is entering kind of a new phase of her life. That kind of shines through very strongly in the album, I think. Right. I think she said uh, she had a different um, title for the song Send My Love that we played a few seconds ago. I can't remember what it was, but she said if we call it that, we might as well call the whole album old. Uh, And I want to have you comment a little bit on on a song that feels to me stylistically like a slight departure for her, uh, but it also fits in with the theme that you're talking about right now, Laura Snapes. This is Million Years Ago. To earn my stripes, I'd have to pay and bear my soul. So, um, first of all, that that sound is familiar to people from other songs and even the chord progression familiar from other kinds of ballads that we know from the past, Laura Snapes. But it really sounds like the kind of song that maybe a 60-year-old person would be singing uh, about her past life and what happened and what didn't happen and whether she turned out to be the person that she she started out trying to be. Um, Am I just an old person having trouble processing Adele's 20-life crisis? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I definitely agree. It does sound like it could almost be some kind of French ballad from the turn of the century. But I guess um, even though she's only 27 now, although the age transitions she's gone through aren't that much and, you know, getting having a long term partner and having a kid, you know, aren't enormous life changing things necessarily. The change in her life has been, I suppose, going from being a very normal girl from Tottenham to being the most famous woman in the world. And I guess that's a rupture that very few people can understand. And so a song like I don't want to say that I think the album is anyway insincere. I think a song like this is coming from a very sincere place. Do you have a favorite cut on this album? Uh, it's definitely Hello. I have to say when I I'm not the target audience for this album, I listened to it because I liked Hello so much. And there wasn't really anything else there that I particularly enjoyed. But that's not me being snobby about it. It's just very much not for me. But when we say target audience, well, so that that transitions us a little bit to the conversation about the commercial potential of this album. It may turn out to be the fastest selling album in history in terms of first week sales. Uh, some remarkable efforts have been made not only to prevent it from being streamed in any conventional way, um, but but even I mean if you just look at the Google pages there's a lot of scrubbing going on they're, they're, they don't want to take any chances that people get this album in the wrong way so I mean you say you're not the target audience and and that's probably more 
an issue of very, very specific taste. In terms of the target target demographic, there kind of is no such thing, right? I mean, isn't this supposed to be the artist who does what artists don't do anymore, which is speak to a lot of people in, in a lot of different demographics? Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, my dad is certainly very excited about this album. I had thought I might be able to get it for him for Christmas, but he's already bought it. Um, but yeah, I mean, on Friday night on the BBC, there was a big Adele at the BBC show, which was like, a mix of a deep interview and a lot of light entertainment and silly stuff. So, yeah, just within that one package, you can see the different audiences they're going for. And if you look at the pre-release press as well, it's really interesting. Her first big cover was on ID magazine, which is a British style Bible. And then she does in the UK, she does one of the supplements of the Sunday paper, The Observer, and she's done The New York Times. So, yeah, you know, you, you can really see it hitting all of those audiences. So I'll, I'll try out one of my uh, shoddily constructed overarching cultural theories about this, and then you can have the pleasure of knocking it down. Um, so one thing that I thought, uh, knowing considerably less about all this than you do, is that there's an odd way in which the marketing of this CD or this album um, parallels the identity of the artist. And what I mean by this is, to me, Adele really does – I, I thought your um, – Turn of the century French chanteuse uh, analogy was very apt. I mean, she, to me, she does sound like a throwback artist in the sense that she she absolutely is trying to resonate emotionally, uh, and and she sings in a di- way that's different from maybe the vogue of singing. She certainly doesn't sound anything like Beyonce or Taylor Swift or or anybody like that. She sings uh, landing the emotional notes uh, and the actual musical notes together in a very direct and powerful way. And in a way, she seems a little bit like an antidote um, to modern digital culture, which just moves so fast and people communicate by texts and say very short things and use Snapchats so you say things and then they disappear. Um, She's sort of the antithesis of that in a way, that she seems, you know, like a person from an earlier time who communicates in longer, deeper, more direct and lasting kinds of sentiments. So it's it intrigues me anyway that the release of this album is so anti-digital. It's like, nope, you're not going to Spotify it. Nope. Pandora is not going to get it for a while. Nope. None of that stuff's going to happen. You're going to have to buy it and engage with it the way people used to engage with music. All right, I'll stand back and you can you can smack that down to the ground. Um, I definitely think your point about the the digital like the digital kind of paranoia is really interesting because I think if you think about a large part of the people who are going to be buying that record, they are probably not necessarily people who can see more of their music digitally. You know, they're probably still people who are going out to a shop and buying the Adele album. Um, I used to work at a magazine uh, called NME in the UK, and after 21 had been out for a year and it was still in the top 10, we sent somebody down to a big record shop to stand and watch who was still buying this. You know, it's it's definitely got a large physical pickup. And so I, it is really interesting to me that they're so paranoid about um, the digital side of it and kind of preserving those sales, because I'm sure even if it was on Spotify or Apple Music or any of these streaming services, the dent it would have in its overall success would be really minimal. Yeah, to me it feels... I don't know whether the paranoia is because they're aware of the fact that maybe she can set some kind of sales records and those become part of the legend itself, or whether it really is just an artist saying, no, no, don't do it that way. You know, I really want you 
to go through this. You know, I really want you to spend time with it the way that I created it, the way that I marketed it. And I don't know how much hope there is for that anyway. I mean, the minute uh, and the way people use music these days, Laura, the minute they buy it, they're going to people are already doing remixes and stuff like that. And obviously people will shuffle it around and distribute it to other people uh, in the ways that they choose. Uh, Is she fighting a losing battle here? Um, possibly. Um, but, you know, th- that is a really interesting point you make that she she probably wants people to go out and buy this record because she is making these very kind of timeless songs and they're very emotionally wrenching. And I'm sure that they very quickly build themselves into the fabric of people's lives, not to make any kind of huge generalization. But the certainly for me, like the instant way that you can acquire music online, I don't necessarily always forge the same depth of a relationship with it as something where I might have had to wait for it or where I've gone and bought the record and really looked at the liner notes. And so in making people go and actually own it physically I suppose that she is saying to them I want this to be a piece of your life which which is a nice thing but I I don't necessarily think you can deny the reality that it is eventually going to wind up on these streaming services it probably just won't be for a month or two or until after the Christmas rush has gone let me swing back to the artist herself and ask you kind of the million dollar question why is she the most famous woman in the world assuming that she is why why her and not anybody else I mean I don't, I mean, I like Adele just fine, but most of these songs strike me as unremarkable in terms of composition. I think she's um, a very nice singer, a singer whose work I I certainly enjoy uh, when I hear it, but not maybe the work that I would seek out. I'm not the target audience either. Um, What do you think she has that nobody else has? Um, I think she has, you know, like we've been saying, she is very timeless. And I feel like a lot of these songs could pretty much have been released at any point within the last 50 years, if not some of them the last 100 years. Um, But I feel like she landed at a point where we, we as a culture, certainly in Britain, really value authenticity, people who can really sing, people who are relatable. And at a point where we... I feel like the the culture in the UK at the moment, we're very interested in things that are epic and that are very unashamedly emotional. I think we're in quite a touchy-feely period for British culture. And she just kind of lands all of these things. And it's interesting as well, um, I think part of her appeal comes from the division between, not necessarily the division between, but the fact that in in her music she's one thing and it's so deep and it's so emotional and it's so moving. But then when you read an interview with her... It, she's very she's a very funny person you know you can tell there's no pretenses there there's no airs and graces and I think that's something that makes her very popular in England as well though I, I don't know how much of that side of her kind of comes through or appeals to American audiences. Well uh, Laura Snapes uh, contributing writer for Pitch, Pitchfork thank you so much for joining us uh, we'll end uh, I think uh, just maybe t- to your point about particularly how she resonates with British audiences uh, we'll uh, end with the the one geographically specific a song on the album. It's called River Lee. It actually does refer to a river that's part of her childhood and her life. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, Laura Snapes, and we'll go out with Adele's River Lee.